Hi, I'm your host Pratik Panda and you're listening to Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast by Philo. Here we talk to the best and brightest in influencer marketing to help answer all your questions from finding the right influencers to making sure you have the best influencer marketing strategy. We also dive deep into the tools and data you need to ensure a winning influencer marketing campaign. So let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast. I'm your host Pratik Panda, VP of Marketing at Philo. Our guest today is Aaron King, the Vice President of Influencer Growth and Innovation at Rogers and Cowan PMK. Rogers and Cowan PMK was founded in 1950 as talent representation for actors and actresses representing legends such as Paul Newman, Cary Grant, Rita Hayworth and so many more. Today the agency represents both talent and brands and specializes in helping its clients become more relevant in the cultural context and connecting them to their audiences for greater levels of engagement. So thanks again Aaron for joining us. We would love to learn a lot more about you during these next few minutes. So let's get started. First things first, you've spent a lot of time in marketing, particularly influencer marketing, close to a decade or more. Why influencer marketing? That is actually a very easy question to answer. It wasn't intentional as I guess the best things never are. Quite a few jobs ago now, I was working for a media company who were beginning to see a shift in the way that comms agencies were communicating with their agencies, you know, with media. And that was obviously back when we were calling influencers bloggers. And I was kind of an early adopter in there, got in, I found it quite interesting. I love anything to do with change. So I fell into it. And I mean, I like to think I'm good at it. And other people seem to think so. So it just kind of gathered steam. And, you know, I find myself here today. Awesome. I'm pretty sure you're good at it. Even at Rogers and Cowan, looks like you've had a couple of promotions in the last few months. Congratulations for becoming the vice president most recently. Tell me how it's been for you at Rogers and Cowan, right? You came through a merger from ITB. What's keeping you excited at Rogers and Cowan PMK? If I'm honest, it's the constant change. And the nice thing about being at RNC PMK is as you mentioned at the top, you know, we've been in this business for about 70 years now. And that's the Rogers and Cowan piece, the PMK piece, because RNC PMK was a merger of two companies. They were around for 50 years pre-merger. So two real powerhouses coming together. And the kind of continued evolution of the brand and the agency and everything that we do is super, super, super exciting. But we are kind of rooted in the same methodologies today almost that we were all the way back then. So it's finding new ways of doing things through the lens of our brand is so interesting. And we kind of, I'm lucky our CEO mostly gives us carte blanche to do what we need to do. He's very open. He's got a very strong vision for where we need to go and we get a lot of support to get there. That's awesome. We will get back to RNC PMK in a bit. But before we go to that, I'm going to do this with all my guests and I'm really excited about this. Give me one hot controversial take on influencer marketing, something that you believe and maybe the market doesn't or so. I would say the most controversial opinion I have is that everything needs to hinge on authenticity. Now, when I say that, 
I kind of need to preface it slightly. And that is that not everything needs to hinge on, I think, what is most people's one dimensional view of authenticity, which is that, you know, I hear it time and time again from brands that an influencer already needs to be an advocate for the brand for it to be authentic. I disagree entirely with that. That's one facet of it, but it's definitely not everything. That's an interesting point, right? And, you know, even at Philo, we help a lot of our brands or our customers with search and discovery. So finding the right influencers. And a lot of people initially think that authenticity means finding the right fit with the influencer, for which they might think that, hey, if they've worked with your same brand or a similar brand, maybe like you've worked a lot in fashion. So let's take an example of shoes, for example, right? If they promoted shoes in the past and they wear nice sneakers or whatever, then they would be more authentic to promoting more shoes. But that may not be the only reason you pick an influencer, right? So can you tell me a little bit more about what you think authenticity really means? Is it more about the fit between the brand and the influencer? Would you let the influencer go fly with their content? How does a brand understand what it takes to be authentic? Yeah, it's a very lofty question. I think the first place to start is that authenticity is multidimensional. There's many, many ways for things to be authentic. If we go to your example of shoes and footwear, the majority of people do wear shoes. So, you know, by that very same logic, anyone would be authentic to do a footwear campaign. What I find really exciting and really interesting is when you begin to scratch away at the audience that you intend to reach, and then you begin to think about, okay, like what is interesting and what's important for them? If I'm selling footwear, maybe people in the footwear community or people who are very active sneakheads are also very, very interested in creativity. So maybe we go down a route of hiring people who are super, super creative, not necessarily sneakerheads. And that's just one example of how something can still be authentic, because at the end of the day, a true artist or creative can take anything and seek inspiration in it, or, you know, completely flip it on its head. Someone could have a true need for a particular product or service that they didn't know beforehand, or maybe they have a very authentic connection to a product or service through someone they know, someone they care about that perhaps they wouldn't necessarily use it themselves, but they can show people that actually this product works for, I don't know, my mum, my friend, my father. I think there's so many ways. We just have to be smart in the current world because when we start thinking about authenticity in that one-dimensional lens, we start to see generic, homogenous content time and time again, especially in the fashion and beauty space, actually. Makes sense. So if we go a step further down that path, right? Okay, as a brand, now you've figured out what authenticity means for you. And by the way, that itself is a big, big achievement. You know, as brands also, it takes a long time to really understand what it means for you. If you're starting to implement a new influencer marketing strategy, where does it start, right? Does it start at the influencer, the brand itself, the audience? Is it messaging? Where do you get started? For me, it's always audience. The very first stage should be understanding the audience that you want to impact. And then you take it further. You have to start understanding, you know, what are the cultural things affecting them? I always say, where do they live? But 
And when I say where do they live, I mean, where do they live online so we can understand what are the best platforms to reach them on? What I find really interesting about taking that audience-first approach is that often it's going to throw you a curveball. There'll be things in there and insights in there that are completely unexpected. Ergo, recently I was doing a piece of research into the beauty space, looking at makeup artists, and the research very much said makeup artists, yes, they use Instagram as a source of inspiration, but they rely very heavily on WhatsApp, which I just found so interesting. So actually, the direction we want to go is tackling makeup artists via WhatsApp and what can we do there, which is completely different from what you would think if you were just to write something down in five minutes. And then that's when we move into, okay, then how do we make this true for the brand? How do we layer everything we need to on top in order for it to make sense? Cool. So you've touched upon Instagram, you said WhatsApp, essentially all different channels where you could go find your audience, right? So audience is one way to discover which channels would work for you. But do you think it matters to brands based on what they stand for? Would it make sense for them to pick a particular platform or not? Let's say, for example, TikTok is very popular amongst Gen Zers. And as a brand, do you want to be on TikTok if it really doesn't scream your brand, but you know that your audience is still there or could be there in the future? Uh, Would you still sort of pick a multi-channel approach and try everything out? Or would you say that, hey, you know, that platform is not really our kind of style and therefore we'll stay away from it, even if it means there's business there? I think for the most part, brands should be taking a multi-channel approach in 2023 and beyond. That said, taking a multi-channel approach, for the most part, is quite costly. The volume of content you need to put out, or if you're doing influencer in this space, the volume of influencers that you need to work with, it's challenging. And it, it requires very, very clear, very concise strategy. And it also requires, I think dilution of your brand is the wrong phrase, but finding the right tone of voice for your brand, for the audience, in the individual channels. And, you know, that kind of age-old, I say age-old, like we've been saying it forever, but it feels age-old to me now, that kind of TikTok versus Instagram debate that seems to be forever happening. Content on TikTok versus content on Instagram does have to look very different, which is double the work. So it often does come down to resources rather than, what's right or wrong. And if I did have limited resources, I would definitely be picking where the largest share of my audience is because I do genuinely believe that any brand can find the right tone for the platform on any platforms. It can be scary for brands. You know, these brands spend tens of millions and billions over the years in shaping their brand and they have a very clear view of what their brand is but we've seen some real success stories you know keeping gen z in mind if we look at brands like duolingo they do amazing on tiktok ryanair as an airline i think are doing such a good job at transforming what people think about their brand because they take their brand onto tiktok and make fun of it themselves in the way that people do and you couldn't do that on a platform like instagram necessarily but you very much can on tiktok so yeah there's a lot of considerations the 
it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, I don't think. And it will all come down to resources. Awesome. I think so. That means, you know, you might, as a brand, know really well what you stand for, what your positioning is, but you sort of tweak it depending on the platform you're going on and the audience that's on it right now. Makes yeah, sense. Sure. There are a lot of brands who struggle to have a clear approach or a clear positioning as well. If you're especially like a, let's say an early stage D2C e-commerce brand and you're just figuring your journey out, like I think the larger brands still have enough firepower in-house or they've spent enough money over time that they know what the brand stands for, what kind of language they want to use and portray. If you're early stage, how do you work with influencers? Do you give creative freedom to the influencer in that case to come up with a strategy? Do you work with a small group of influencers? Maybe do sort of a close group focused discussion of sorts where you brainstorm and come up with something good? Or is it always better for brands to tell influencers exactly what to say or what to post out? So I think as a starting point, I definitely believe that a brand should never instruct an influencer verbatim on what to say, no matter whether you're a huge conglomerate or a kind of startup DCC brand. You will never get maximum value from the influencer by doing that. One of the ways that I kind of challenge our clients to think about influencers is many of our clients have a creative agency. And an influencer is just a mini, mini scaled down version of that creative agency. And you hire them because you want their creative might and expression, et cetera. So we need to think about influencers like that. That said, like with all briefs that will go to a creative agency or to an influencer, there needs to be clear guardrails. I'm very pro giving the influencer creative freedom and creative expression, but they need to understand what the brand needs to take away from that and you know sometimes it's slightly more complex most of the time it's simple thankfully so that's really really important and then I guess the difference is it when we think about smaller DTC brands and then your kind of bigger conglomerates tends to at some point to be kind of the opposite of what you've said actually for our very big clients we're doing things like focus groups with creators to help shape creative because they have to generally build their creative and create their communities at a much larger scale than the smaller brands. So it does require that kind of upfront thought and effort. Whereas our smaller clients who may be DTC, we are able to be a little more agile in our approach. So you can test creative, you can work with the influencer to build individual creative to help kind of shape the narrative of the brand on social. Cool. You mentioned a little bit about testing the creative, right? How do you measure success as a brand, right? Not everything influencer marketing is purely about conversions. Yes, you can run some campaigns that promote the next best sneaker you're going to launch, but a lot of it is also brand building, community building, just creating more love for the brand, right? What are some things that you guys suggest brands to look at when they are trying to define ROI, right? So which need not necessarily be purely in terms of dollars. Yeah, this one is always a interesting subject. I mean, look, the metrics that we can measure have really, really evolved in the last few years. I remember back in the day, everyone 
would die on a sword for engagement. And look, engagement is still an interesting metric. Don't get me wrong. It very much works, you know, as you just mentioned, from a brand love perspective. Although I would kind of add that there aren't many studies out there at the moment that actually understand what is it that the audiences are loving. Is it they are liking the product? Are they liking the person or are they liking the creative? Which I find fascinating. So for that reason, I tend to shy a little bit away from engagement. I think always understanding the amount of people that have seen your post from an influencer, so your impressions and your reach, is always a great metric. And then on the brand love side, obviously, we can look at brand love studies. We can look at how things are performing over time. If we're doing something long-term with a creator, to be able to test what works, but we need to think about ensuring that the environment that they're posting in is like for like. So there's quite a lot to consider. And actually, for us, we think about metrics in kind of three core buckets that are in CPMK. So we think about your kind of outputs, which is your harder metrics. So your impressions, your engagements, etc. Then we start thinking about your outcomes. So what did we want the audience to do? And did we achieve that? And then progress as well. And progress for us is working towards the bigger brand goals that may be long-term goals, not necessarily short-term goals like engagement, etc. Got it. As a brand manager, if I'm looking at things like, let's say, impressions, engagement, you know, there is this whole discussion around nano-influencers and micro-influencers these days who on a percentage term, can more often than not give you a higher conversion rate. But of course, the volume is lower, so you might have to work with a large set. But if I'm a brand manager, doesn't it then make it easy for me to just go work with some large influencers? It gives me great reach, great influence, but may or may not necessarily be the only way to do things. So what's your take on this whole talk about nano-influencers and micro-influencers? So nano and micro influencers, very, very pro nano and micro influencers. I myself have been working with micro influencers for years and years, and then nano influencers more recently in the last couple of years. I think it all comes down to the selection of the tier of influencer is based on what you want to achieve. So top of funnel awareness, you know, in most cases, not in every case, Thinking about larger influencers, probably your best bet. Also, in terms of media costs, it's cheaper. If we break it down to those like hardcore CPM metrics, mid-tier, obviously, you can think about them in that mid-section of the funnel. But then what I find really interesting is that, and again, not in all cases, but generally speaking, with micro and nano influencers, they're generally sitting in a niche or they are known for a particular thing. They haven't developed their content much beyond that if we think about their career as an influencer. And as you say, they have generally better engagement and generally in terms of the reach percentage, it's higher and achieves more. But doing that at scale is really, really difficult because the management of that can be a nightmare. So it's just about matching up the right influencers for the right funnel stage and getting them to do the right thing. In most cases with our clients, we generally advise taking a multi-layered approach. It's quite rare these days for us to do only one thing unless it's a very specific need like 
awareness. Got it. Makes sense. So if we want to make sure that campaigns are not only impactful, meaning you know, you get the results that you wanted. A lot of these platforms today, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, are very short-lived for content, right? You throw something out there and it has a short life and you have to always keep working on more, right? And as audiences also, we've becoming more tuned to that kind of content, short snippets, you consume, move on, consume something else and so on, right? How do you make sure that what you are producing or putting out is not only impactful, but can retain its value over time, right? So it can, I think, come down to creative. I'll use an example. So back when my team was ITV, before we were folded into RNCPMK, we were at the genesis of the hashtag Mike Calvin's campaign. The team came up with that, rolled it out, and all these years later, it's still going. It's instantly recognizable. It has that kind of simplicity and it's creative and they really really stick to their guns on how it should look you know it's still there we still see it on billboards we still see it online it's impactful arguably the most successful influencer marketing campaign ever so that's one route i think another route and i would question it is does it always need to be impactful because often we utilize influencers to tackle a very specific moment in time need be it a new product launch and then we will use them again for the next new product launch and again so we don't always think about the long-term viability of a specific piece of content that said you know similar to the calvin klein example we do often think about when we are building campaigns for our clients is can we build a kind of creative anchor point that we can always come back to. Another example for that, a piece of work we actually won an award on that was amazing is our work with UGG and their Feel campaign. So Feel was their new brand positioning a few years ago, and it still continues today. And the iteration of what Feel looks like from UGG now is quite different, but they all use that kind of brand positioning of Feel as your kind of constant anchor point but it evolves naturally awesome thanks a lot for those examples and since we are talking about examples have you come across a particular influencer marketing approach either maybe something that you came up with for one of your brands or something else that you've noticed recently and you were really impressed that hey that's a good take on influencer marketing that's a good way to you know run with an influencer marketing campaign i'll go to a different agency's work so I don't really talk about our own. I'm going to talk about reactive content. So one of our sister agencies, McCann Live, they are a, first and foremost a social agency, but they also dabble in the influence world. And I don't know if it made it to the States. We have this really big brand here in the UK called Marks and & Spencers. And it sounds ridiculous if you don't live in the UK. They have a chocolate cake. It's like a, a birthday cake in the shape of a caterpillar. It's called Colin the Caterpillar. It's famous. It's like, you know, Twinkies in America. And then McCann Live's client, who are Audi, the arrival supermarket chain, who sits on a slightly different part of the spectrum, released a cake called Cuthbert. And so naturally, there was like a media firestorm about it. And all of these people online everywhere were talking about it. 
normally a brand would be like, oh my God, what the hell is happening? Like, this is the worst thing ever. No, like McCann did not do that. They were super, super reactive in a very positive way. They started posting memes like free Cuthbert because Marks and Spencers were suing Audi. And it was just genius, like taking that kind of very reactive approach in a way that is native to the audience as well. You know, normally when someone's taking you to court, you don't start posting memes about, please stay away from my cake. And it was just great. Every time I look at that case study, I giggle because it literally is genius. That's awesome because I think there's a learning there, right? One is you prep really well on what your campaign strategy is and what you want to get out of it. But a lot of things can go haywire, right? And when that situation presents itself, A, you have to listen well. B, you have to come up with a plan and instead of trying to get very defensive about it, try to find a way to be creative and leverage it to your advantage, right? So I think that's the key learning there. And as brand managers, you tend to protect and defend your brand so much that you tend to get into a shell when something like this happens. So kudos to the team there. I'm sure they would have had chaotic days inside the office. (laughs) But, you know, to be able to come up with a spin like that and, uh, you know, make the best out of it is definitely amazing. Yeah. You know, one of the, the really interesting things is I think that generally with influencer and creator marketing, we're going to have to start thinking about creative in two ways we're going to have to start thinking about proactive creative so what is the new creative the shape message etc that we want to put out there but with you know the amazing and crazy success of tiktok we are also needing to react to trends in real time and that kind of lead time in a campaign where you would i don't know I mean, for me, I love to have a good couple of weeks before a campaign goes live to get it all buttoned down. You can't do that when you've been reactive. A couple of weeks, the thing, the trend is over. So I think generally speaking, people are going to have to be a bit braver if we want to use a trend as a catalyst to put our content out there. And we see it's so interesting. I, I don't think many brands have really done a great job of it yet because you'll see like this trend-based content three months after the trend has finished. So it's an interesting challenge for everyone. Yeah, and on that note, you know, even on my team, I've had amazing teammates who've been very creative and have tried to jump on an opportunity to ride the wave like this. And of course, for us in the B2B space, it's a little more difficult. You're trying to also not be serious, but still there's a fine line, right? But if you have to sort of react quickly and make the best out of it. I think the thing that slows people down is a process, there's approval if you're a large brand, whatever, right? So that's one. Two is being able to move quickly with the creative process and produce something really quickly. So do you think it's okay to compromise on quality of the creative as long as you're able to get the message out quickly and you're able to write on it? Or do you still think that the quality of the creative is as important as the timing of it? The thing is, I don't know if you do compromise on the quality of the creative. I think it depends on how you judge creative. 
let's say we're thinking about Instagram. If we're judging creative on having a super high resolution, super sharp, beautifully saturated image, then maybe. But if we're judging creative on what's making someone stop and think, or what's making someone have a laugh and maybe think about our brand in a slightly different way, then I don't know if we are compromisingly creative. And I think that's the magic and that's the hard bit to get heads around. And that was very much why at first people were a bit reticent to TikTok, right? Like we are so used to, or we were so used to being in this world of Instagram where everything is beautifully polished. And, you know, there's very much still a place for that on Instagram. Instagram is still wildly successful, but TikTok's not that. TikTok's like the naughty little brother or sister that doesn't really make as much effort to do their hair. You know, it's grittier, it's raw, you know, to use that word that I hate, it seems a bit more authentic. We just need to think about how we're judging creativity. I think that's a very good point. Even when I was researching about starting this podcast, right? And I've been on podcasts, but I'm relatively new to hosting a podcast, right? And I was reading a bunch of Twitter threads from people who've done this in the past, who do it really well, and what kind of tips they would give. And, you know, when you start researching online, you would find tons of content around here's the best camera, there's the next ring light, and you need to look good and whatever, right? But end of the day, I think my takeaway was, like you mentioned about how you define creative, end of the day, it's the story and the message that matters, right? If the conversation itself is not interesting, it doesn't matter how good you look, it doesn't matter how great of a audio video setup you have, it's just not going to make people stop and think. And I guess That's what defines creative in its true sense. It may not look the best. It may not sound the best, but as long as it's able to make people stop scrolling and watch you for a few seconds, your creative is good. What do you think is the next evolution for influencer marketing? It seems like we're still sort of in the early infant stages where, you know, we are still trying to navigate as brands as well, as influencers as well. But this market is poised to grow. Where do you think it's headed? What are some of your insights on that? Again, I think that's quite an easy one. So the kind of proactive and reactive content, as I've already said, commerce, obviously, there is a big appetite across the world for commerce to be successful in the West. And I'm sure with the amount of dollars that people are putting into it, that it will be successful. From a creative standpoint, I think what we will begin to see is tapping more into subcultures and smaller communities. If we think about the communities of people in the same way that we think about micro and nano influencers, you know, if we think about fashion, macro, but then when we start to think about the the small intricacies in fashion like millinery, probably not a subculture, I would say it's more of a culture, but it's the only one that came to mind there. We'll start to see more work around specific subcultures. And I think As a marketer, the industry changing, you've already touched on it today, that we are already seeing and will continue to see evolve is that for influencer or creator marketing, there'll be a much more defined role for it in the marketing mix. Brands doing it really, really well already have nailed down that role for influencer marketing. And we'll start to see the brands that kind of group it with comms or that group it with creative or group it with media start to realize that actually it's its own thing that pulls on all of those things, but it's its own thing. I always say to people, they need to think about influence marketing 
like we thought about programmatic a few years ago, you know, like everyone was like, right, we'll add it here, we'll add it there, we'll tie it into this. And now look at where programmatic is today. And I'm very sure that that is how influencer is going to be in the next couple of years. Yeah, that makes the two of us. I think I'm very bullish about this as well. And as a B2B marketer, I see that it's going to catch up on trends on the B2B side as well. It's just a little bit trickier, but I think it will catch up on the B2B side as well. Cool, Aaron. I think we've been having a great conversation, but before we close, I'd like to ask you a couple more things. One is if you were to take out any one of your influencers to lunch, who would you like to go out to lunch with? Maybe one of the virtual influencers. Obviously, that isn't possible. But I'm just so intrigued with virtual influences and the ethical and moral dilemmas and the quagmire you could find yourself getting into. I'd love to figure all of that out. That's interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> I would love to know how that goes out, uh, you know, <laughs> lunch with a virtual influencer. But great. If you had to give one piece of advice to anybody starting out in influencer marketing, whether it's a marketer, a brand, doesn't matter. Do you have some piece of advice to share with our listeners? Yeah, just test and learn. I think there's a kind of misconception that influencer marketing is really, really expensive. It's not. You can start small and work your way up. If we look at L'Oreal, L'Oreal is a, a group probably one of the biggest spenders in influencer marketing they definitely weren't at the very start but it's proven itself and i think find your feet don't rush it it takes time and hire a good agency yeah i think you need the right partners to grow all the time agency technology tools processes finding the right partner especially when you're starting off is definitely essential awesome aaron i had a great time talking to you thanks a lot for joining us thanks for sharing all of the wisdom and tips and advice hopefully we can catch up again someday and meanwhile wish you loads of luck and hope you continue to grow and shine as you've done so far and let's all work together and grow the influencer marketing industry yeah Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks. Bye-bye. Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast is brought to you by Philo. Philo is the easiest way to get access to authenticated creator data from hundreds of different platforms. To know more about Philo, visit getphilo.com. That's getphylo.com. Also, make sure to search for Influencer Marketing Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast listening platforms. And don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Philo, thank you so much for listening.